Hello and welcome back to Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. I'm Arthur, or Art Projects, one of your hosts. And I'm Eamon, or Voidlight, your other co-host. And we are thrilled to be in your ears yet again for all of you returning listeners and for all you new listeners. Welcome in and we hope you enjoy what we're talking about today. Eamon, I understand that you have a highlight you'd like to share. That's right, I do. Um, I have been running around like a chicken with my head cut off uh, because Invisible Sun just finally got into the hands of all um, or many backers. They're rolling out across the country now. The black cube, which contains all the materials for that game, showed up on my doorstep. Um, and I've been digging through it. And I've been going and watching um, the two uh, actual play campaigns that were officially released before the game, because there's a pretty tight control on the NDA of what was allowed to be released. And one one campaign was run by Monty Cook Games themselves, where they showed their own employees playing a game. And then one was run by a, um, a gaming group that I quite like, which is the One Shot Network, One Shot Podcast Network. Um, out of Chicago, which is a group of improv comedians that play all sorts of games, including Dungeon World um, and, um, and and Shadowrun and all sorts of things. But they played a series uh, of Invisible Sun uh, sessions uh, run by uh, Darcy Ross from Monty Cook was running the system for them. And there was a moment in that game that highlighted to me why they're such excellent role players that I think was uh, could be useful for Dungeon World. And in fact, could have happened in a Dungeon World uh, system. It wasn't like a uh, setting-specific thing. Essentially this. One character's name is Calvin, and he was traditionally a very nervous character, very timid. He actually had anxiety as like part of his character that was... Um, he, he was in this strange land, and it was a very difficult thing. But through the use of a spell, he removed the fear from his body. Like the fear as an entity completely removed it. And the fear was essentially this like black eel-like creature covered in eyes that was floating above his head, trapped in a glass orb because he had removed it from his body via a spell. And he just had this serene about him after that. And he was trying to really consider like, how do I roleplay this character now that he is just purely logical and fearless and, and simply evaluates things differently without fear. And another character was trying to... Um, tell him like you are like in a dangerous situation and we need to get this sorted out and i want you to appreciate the gravity of it and it was an interesting interaction because he couldn't appeal to his fear like you couldn't tell him like you're gonna die we need to solve this because when he said like you might die calvin simply said like i've never died before i wonder what that might be like i, I wonder if that might have negative effects you know because the fear was just not there and and so I uh it was that's my highlight just because um it's a a role playing moment that was not enabled by the people being committed to portraying their characters with a dynamic realism that allowed them to um explore things not even if they weren't purely to the benefit of their character uh and allowed them to frame up story moments um yeah and that was uh, both a result of good good primarily good players because the GM was sitting, sort of sitting back at that moment and watching that happen, and not like forcing that upon the upon the characters. So, I think that uh, when when things have happened like that in Dungeon World games for me, they've been sessions to remember. Absolutely. One thing I really like about this highlight is the description of what the fear itself looks like, what the oh, yeah. anxiety manifests as physically. I mean, I don't know about you, Emma, but I definitely have some issues with anxiety in my real life, and. The description of an eel-like creature with lots of eyes definitely maps to the way I think about it. 
in oh, terms yeah. of constantly trying to be hyper aware of everything around me and looking in all directions for things that could be going wrong. What uh, what an accurate description that is indeed. I think um, what what would other emotions look like, right? If you pulled them out of yourself and and manifested them, um, that's a very invisible sun like uh, thing to think thing to think about. But I think would also be like you could build a character construct construct around that, right? Like you could maybe play a um, a bard or a wizard in Dungeon World that was entirely focused on uh, cataloging all the different nuanced emotions of the the realms that they come across, and they might be really fascinated with a given goblin or with a dragon because they are capable of certain emotions that humans aren't. Right? Like maybe a dragon is capable of the specific type of sadness that comes from having ridiculous quantities of gold that are not quite enough, and like that's a certain like emotion that this wizard might want to like capture and bottle, you know, and maybe even sell or something like that. Yeah, and what is the what does the bottled construct that is existential horror at the acquisition of treasure? I mean, to me, it's just lots and lots of tendrils constantly reaching out and deep, deep roots trying to dig into any surface that they can find. <laughs> ah, sounds like a deadly creature, Eamon. And. Yeah. Speaking of deadly creatures, I think we have something specific we want to talk to about today in our adventure workshop. Today we're going to be talking about Last Breath, one of the best moves in Dungeon World. Oh yes. This I I almost would say that as a system, this is Dungeon World's like signature move. I don't know if that's too bold of a claim, but it's one of the most respected, feared, and renowned moves in Dungeon World. Um, yeah, so I am I actually want to read the exact text of this. I'm going to... Uh, well, well how convenient, because I have the exact text oh, right in front of my eyes. Let us have it. Last breath. When you're dying, you catch a glimpse of what lies beyond the black gates of death's kingdom. The GM will describe it. Then roll. Just roll, plus nothing. Yeah, death doesn't care how tough or cool you are. On a 10+, plus, you've cheated death. You're in a bad spot, but you're still alive. On a 7-9, to nine, death will offer you a bargain, take it and stabilize, or refuse and pass beyond the black gates into whatever fate awaits you. On a miss, your fate is sealed. You're marked as death's own and you'll cross the threshold soon. The GM will tell you when. There's a lot of good stuff there for that move. I want to call out a few things um, mechanically real quick. First of all, it doesn't say when you hit zero hit points. It says when you're dying. So that's kind of putting to the forefront this idea in Dungeon World that the fiction triggers the mechanics, not the other way around. Um, because it, conceivably, um, there could be a moment where, regardless of any concerns of hit points you are simply dying. Like, that is just what's happening in the fiction. And we want to go straight to last breath and not worry about, like, trying to justify in reverse, like, oh, you're not at zero hit points yet? Then I guess you must not be dying. If the fiction is such means, that... Yeah, it also means... It means you don't have to do things like calculate the damage you take when you fall. Because fall damage doesn't impact last breath. The number of hit points that you've taken being 25 because you fell 300 feet is irrelevant. It, it is very much more a... You hit the ground hard. Roll last breath. Yeah, moment. or or as a threat um, of like the consequences of a move. Like for example, if um, 
even if it's a simple goblin, if they're right up on your throat and like you, you've maybe you failed several other rolls previously, and the GM says like they're holding a knife to your throat, defy danger or have someone aid you, but if this roll goes badly, you're probably going straight to last breath. Like that's valid, right? right? No matter and how many hit points you have, someone puts you knife right in your throat, you're probably dead. You know. And that's a GM move too. Tell them the requirements or consequences, and then ask what deeper consequence do we have than roll last breath it means that it's it's a it's a very useful convenient shorthand that helps you establish that this is near lethal no matter how badass you are and have been up to this point now that having been said i do think that there has to be a certain amount of restraint that gms show when it comes to last breath right like we don't want to just say oh you walk into the cave and it's dark defy danger to avoid tripping or you'll be rolling last breath because it's not justified by the fiction it's not justified mechanically right you don't know if they'll be dying yet you know it's not clear that that's a lethal scenario you know there's the obfuscation of what's going on in the fiction which is unfair to the players um i think um another thing that's interesting about this move is the fact that it's a flat roll shows that before death everyone is um equal in that sense of that when you meet your when you not necessarily meet your maker but like when you come to that last breath uh any previous preparations that you've taken are going to ultimately not be worth that much except in a few specific cases it's worth noting the cleric has the ability to give a plus one to someone near them who's taking last breath and the barbarian also has a move that allows them to have uh plus one to last breath i believe um, there was actually a discussion on the Dungeon World subreddit, r slash uh, Dungeon World, that I was um, looking at today, which was asking um, uh, user CS underscore egg noodles was asking, can you aid or interfere on last breath? They were saying, you know, for example, Joff is bleeding out on the ground after taking a spear to the gut, and Einar is trying to patch them up and stop the bleeding. Could Einar attempt to aid on Joff's last breath move? How would you handle it? I'm interested. What would you say for that, Art? That's a tough one. To me, that's not... Well, yeah, to me, that wouldn't aid the last breath roll specifically. I really think that the book is implying, at least the way I read it, the, the book is implying that when you roll last breath, it should be a flat roll. And there are moves that can push that up, but I, it would. what would trigger aid or interfere in that situation is, I think, very limited to stuff that happens between describing what death looks like and the role itself because that's what the kind of move says right first the gm describes what lies beyond the black gates of death's kingdom and then there's a role to me that kind of means that the aid or interfere should impact something between those two moments if it's going to have an impact on the role itself i think the uh the ambiguity here is really interesting um, and creates the space for a good table conversation uh, for what is death going to be in this game? Like what role is death and character death going to take? Because um, I could see the arguments for both sides. Um, the fact that the move says when you are dying instead of when you are dead implies that um, there is something still to be done there, right? You could fictionally stop a character from being considered as dying by stabilizing them, right? So maybe they're bleeding out and the GM's like, time to roll last breath. And you could say, wait, before they get too far, can I try to patch them up? And you, the GM may say yes, in which case I could see perhaps a defy danger with int or with wisdom to try to um, heal them potentially, or even with dexterity, uh, situation permitting. 
Um, and if that goes well, the last breath roll is averted. Maybe they have one hit point left. Um, on the other hand, I personally um, could see situations where I would allow a plus one to, to last breath, like maybe given certain magical situations or things like that. Um, uh, if, if other characters were helping them or interceding on their behalf, as um, people were said in the case of a warlock where your patron could potentially come in there. Um, but I do also see value in the idea that it's up to chance. Like if there, if it truly is a flat roll and there is no modifiers, then it kind of highlights the fact that death is capricious and that you're really just praying to like the dice gods in that moment that, um, that you're going to have any sort of positive effect here. Um, I'm interested in kind of moving on to talking about like the results of the role and how those might go. What do you think? Same Art? here. Let's let's do it. So, so um, first of all, um, describing the black gates before the role is even made and like the opportunity that the fact that there are even gates at all that they're black. Like, what do you think about? Have you ever seen a really cool rendition of the black gates in your game? I like to have my players describe what their black gate looks like. Yeah, I do too. I this is definitely one way to make the role simultaneously more inclusive and more intimidating is to ask the player to describe it rather than making the choice as the GM. Even though the move says the GM should describe it, I think that the player should get a chance to sort of say how it starts. Now, as for specific examples, I'm going back through and trying to find one. I had one player uh, who was playing a paladin describe the not the gate itself, but the roll, the road beyond it as just an infinite winding path, which those who pass through the gates are destined to walk, even independent of death itself as the gatekeeper. And then another one, uh, another player was playing a fighter and described death as, or what lay beyond as just a pasture, a place where they, where they could build a life which I think was important to their character as someone who had fought for so long. Yeah, it was, it was like a final rest, perhaps. Absolutely. I, um, I was in one of the games that I GM for my younger brothers um, in a, a weird moment of poignance. My my youngest brother, who was, I think, nine at the time, he um, he was playing an emulator, and he, he described this emulator's background as that he was out on the road because he accidentally burned his entire town down um, just when he was, like, discovering his powers. And what he was playing this character incredibly recklessly and towards the end of our, our little quest rolled last breath and I asked him to describe it and he said that he saw the town um, and all the people there just staring at him like beckoning him to like rejoin the town and I was like utterly chilled I was like oh my god <laughs> where did you learn that oh man that rules that rules so we have our ways of describing what lies beyond the black gates but let's actually take a look at each of these different roles here and talk about what we would do on the consequences for each of them absolutely because i think the 10 plus case in particular has sort of a weirdness to it as does the six minus to me seven to nine out of these it makes the most i guess sense yeah that there's a justification for why they would come back right so 10 plus to me is that part of it makes total sense, right? You succeed, you're you're fine, you're still alive, but you're in a bad spot. And I I like how ambiguous that is, but there's also a mechanical difficulty that I always have when we see a 10 plus, which is well, how how many hit points do you then have? Does it not do say? You, 
it does not say it says you're in a bad spot which could mean one hit point but otherwise you're fine but it could also mean full hit points but the goblin war chief still has an axe to your you know to your chest yeah do you want me to speak to that yeah what what, what do you do so often um i i base it on the fiction of them them saying like why they um escaped um i like i like to say like if you avoided death you tell me how because um, that's another moment to flesh out the character and like when they're presented with death and they're unwilling to go um what do they use to their advantage um do they like steal themselves and as they're dying um just with the iron will to live stagger back to their feet to prove to death no don't take me i'm not ready um do they accept it it, it, is it did they have a conversation with death but it went so well that death sent them back with no terms like that they like bested death in like a chess match is like a classical example or like they told death like i will come to you willingly but you can see as well as i that there's work to be done and i will send many more to your kingdom if you want it to be dark uh, and death is like all right i'll heal you and it's time for you to go back i i typically would not send a character back to full hit points just to like signal the gravity because full hit points tends to signal the players like you're fine you're okay um low hit points um whether or not the hit points on a granular level are showing their level of well-being they're showing kind of threat and closeness to death and i like the idea that if they don't be careful after this last breath they'll be rolling it again like really soon totally so, i think that's important yeah. that they that they end up in that situation talking this through i think i actually figured out how i like would like to handle 10 plus or at least the next thing i'm going to try Go in a 10 it. plus for a last breath which is to sort of treat it like a resistance role in blades in the dark one of the cool mechanics in blades is the idea that any consequence you can just say no that doesn't happen to me and this is how much stress i'm going to take to prove it i like the idea that last breath 10 plus could almost be an undo something where you are badly hurt maybe but then everything stops and we get a cheesy 90s movie style rewind and your moments before the blow fell and you can try again oh yeah so sort of like retcon that um you, if that blade had gone through your throat you would have died but mm -hmm. you you had that moment flash before your eyes and you like avoided it is that what you're saying totally another that's, way of phrasing cool it, too it, yeah yeah so how about on that, the six minus well so six minus let's read this again on a miss your fate is sealed you're marked as death's own and you'll cross the threshold soon the gm will tell you when I so, think that the, the designers allowed the space there that if a lot of times people are worried if it's not a narratively satisfying moment for their character to die, like you're you're fighting a bunch of, you know, something that doesn't seem worthy of you, like or something that's beneath you, mm -hmm. or something inconsequential or a side quest or something, and your character dies and it sort of leaves a bad taste in your mouth, and they're kind of leaving the narrative space that you don't have to die right then, but give it some thought because we're gonna frame up when you're gonna die, hopefully within that session. And the GM kind of has the power to put that scene into play right in particular if a last breath happens in the first 10 minutes and you get to the six minus you can still say all right this character has three to five hours left depending on how long we're playing today and that's it um i like the idea that the marked in the type of fantasy i play at least that the marked as death's own is a, a literal thing and of a, instead of a metaphorical thing perhaps people can even see the death mark on you mm. um and and that, that that could even be used for intimidation that like you have no fear of death anymore because you know that you're already marked 
Um, additionally, uh, you might not be bleeding out, right? Like you might have, um, for whatever reason, you were dying, but you kind of recovered. But Death said, like, I'll take you soon. And so, like, when it becomes narratively appropriate or satisfying at the end of the session or what have you, um, a void simply opens and you step through, you know, or are pulled through, or your time is just up. And yeah. you, you physically you might be okay. Yeah. 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 But it's I over. I want to think a little bit about the literal marks that death could put on a PC because there's a, there's obvious stuff like the black spot on the hand that's gradually growing. There's, you know, every vein in your body turning to an inky black and shining through your skin. Very, there, there are a lot of sort of visually oriented death marks that I think we're familiar with through popular culture. But, you know, and just off the top of my head, Iron Man 2 has a pretty active plot around being marked by death as does say pirates of the caribbean too really it's just the it's just what sequels do i guess um <laughs> but i also <laughs> want us to i want to make sure that we're not uh that we're not limiting ourselves to just the visual sense because i think as gms we can get into that trap sometimes but what does death's mark smell like i'll bet it's not great but you know at the same time maybe it's like the scent of an orchid that's calling the harpies down to reclaim their uh you know to reclaim their corpse or, you know, the vultures or whatever scavenger of choice is. The character's cold to the touch. It's a classic one. Cold to the touch, indeed. Um, every every breath you take, it, it tastes of ash. The, um, or, all, uh, you know, the other the other way around on that, which is that every time you touch a piece of food, it shrivels away and, and rots in your hand. Maybe that's how you die. Like, maybe, maybe it's you have a, until you starve. Yeah. Like that's, you know, that's as long as you have left. Totally. It's impossible. It's just simply impossible to gain sustenance anymore. Yeah. Speaking There's, of Pirates uh, of the Caribbean, I think Pirates of the Caribbean has a really good death mark built into the very first one, which is that everyone's actually a skeleton magically cursed to appear human unless they're under the moonlight. Yeah, that's a cool one, too. That The fact that it's under certain circumstances. I like the idea yeah. of a PC that um, they look fine to themselves and they're like, uh, where's death's mark? But everyone else who looks at them, they see someone they love that died instead of that PC's face. And so you ask all the other PCs, like, what do you see when you look at this mm -hmm. person now? Especially if and it's just for a moment. Like, oh, it's it's Esmeralda, my wife. But no, she's not here. No, no, it, it, it's just... It's just Gong Nork, the, the barbarian. <laughs> hey, Gong Nork. So, I guess this is it, huh? Yeah. You got a will? Time to make one. The, um... The, the time in which the character is sort of, the player even, is preparing for their character to be no more is a good time to think about what comes next for the player. Like, are they going to make a new character? Uh, are, do they have some sort of legacy where they're going to pass on? Um, potentially even um, narrative bridging. Like, if they have a Skyon or, or a child or an apprentice or anything like that, uh, you can sort of take the time to stat them up. Mm -hmm. um, you can take the time to promote a hireling, take the time to introduce a satisfying NPC that they'd like to play. Um, and that's a way to give yourself the time and space to uh, not have something contrived, not be like, suddenly a ranger is here. And he's, yes. you know, he's been he's following your group for several months and he's decided to make himself known today. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. All right. That's yeah. actually that's one thing I need to get into the habit of being better at as a GM is making sure to introduce characters that players can attach themselves to just in case the unthinkable should happen, as it did twice in my most recent session. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, and then, um, of course, there, there's the other version of it, which is that 
the rest of the PCs decide that this won't stand and they go off to they go off to beyond death and bring back the player or the yes, player the, character the classic um rescuing them from mm-hmm. from beyond death yes campaign or arc which everyone I, I think every game will end up having one of those on a long enough time scan or time scale unless you're very clear at the beginning that it's not something that makes sense which is something you know for instance the sprawl does this in a pretty cool way i, I don't know if you've read the rules around I character have. death there but yeah one of the things that the sprawl basically claims is every player character is replaceable if you're the hacker you're one of hundreds of totally identical hackers not like literally identical but for all intents and purposes if your hacker dies you're going to come back in the next session with a new character who could be a hacker that's exactly the same as the old one because that guy is out there somewhere you are not unique unlike in dungeon world where if you are the fighter you are the fighter and that's unique that's pushing i mean the tropes of the fantasy genre is that heroes are unique um whereas in um in cyberpunk right that like life is cheap and 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 skill is something that can be bought and and you are not special which is um i think an example of why both of those games do a good job emulating their genre um but you could play a darker fantasy right that like um maybe life is cheap out here on the on the hinterlands or um you know past the wall or um, things like that or play dark fantasy additionally right. um you can make the death um be a heroic moment if you want uh to play up that aspect of it and make it that like they don't have to play a similar character because that character they got so much value out of it that they're narratively like done or satisfied i think um grim world has does a really good job of that if you've ever played grim world i have um, not it's uh it's 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 the same thing as dungeon world uh just with uh the addition of some new character classes and they add one new mechanic which is um, death moves, and it's when you die, like after you roll last breath, um, if you fail the last breath roll, um, you, what, based on your playbook, something special will happen. So for example, there's one character that is the, uh, the channeler, and their whole thing is that they channel elemental energy. They're kind of like an evocation mage. But when they die, their body is going to be a... Where, the spot that they died is going to be a permanent rift to a different plane that is spewing out energy. So they've sort of left their mark on the world. Or um, I think the necromancer, when they die, like all nearby skeletons rise up as an army and try to avenge them and kill whatever the single thing cool. is that did the death blow. So it's, it makes the characters like anticipate that death is going to be there because it's on their playbook, like this death move. And also mm-hmm. like when it happens, like be like not be uh, a bad sport about it and be like, yeah. I'm going to leave my mark. I'm going to make it an interesting moment. It's almost something to look forward to in, uh, in an odd way. Yeah, because you can kind of get your... Revenge. Some, some, a lot of the playbooks are focused around like getting your revenge. So, totally. All right. Well, why don't we round out this adventure workshop with a quick fire round? Let's come up with some seven to nine bargains with death, either Thanks. that we've used before or that we're coming up with right now off the top of our heads. Eamon, you want to start or shall I? I can start. Um, here's one that I'm um, I'm borrowing from somewhere, but I have no idea where, um, so I, I can't really give attribution for it. But it is. Um, I think it might be from a Dungeon World uh, guide. Um, anyway, uh, Death says, In life, thief, you skulked around the shadows, and I shall let you return to skulk more. But if the sun should ever so much as touch your skin again, you will crumble to ash. Cool. Force the player to lean into the I operate at night trope that a yeah. thief might operate in. Very nice. Well, I've got one. 
Druid, you've long protected the seeds that serve this forest, but now I need you to plant something for me. Here, take this and return. <laughs> Wizard, you were so concerned with spending the time, the money, the energy of others to fuel your pursuit of magic, but you never counted the cost for yourself, and now you'll pay prices in blood for the magic that you pay. From now on, spells cost HP equal to their level, each casting, successful or unsuccessful. Oh dear, that one is... That one I actually might make the choice to slip beyond the black gates and start a new wizard. <laughs> Let's see. Fighter. I think that's the goal, right? Like, make, yeah. make a, make a, make a, a bargain choice. where like, yeah. they could conceivably decline, right? Totally. Hmm, let me think. Let's see if I can find one for a fighter here. Fighter, long has your sword caused many to cross my gate. But now I think it's time for an upgrade. Take this and, and slake its thirst with the blood of three a day. And you shall remain in the land of the living. Oh man, that's cool too. That you could almost um, like give them an additional enhancement for their weapon, and um, but you know there there's that horrible price that they they simply cannot go without killing. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of one for the paladin, just since we're going down this route of playbook ones. Um, I don't know if it's too punitive to say paladin, you're. Um, your promise will never ring as true, and you can't take the quest move anymore. Like, you just can't use it. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that would make, might make the character a little unsatisfying to play. And yeah, that might be a little a little bit yeah. too far. I might suggest for a paladin, rather than having them, rather than depriving them of access to one of their moves, I would go more the fiction or emotional route. Death opens a door, and on the other side, there's your god. Sleeping in a, in a four-poster bed. On the bedside table, a long jagged dagger. Oh, oh God! Like they—they they literally had to have to be commit deicide to like stay alive. Yes. No, That's just, a big which one. isn't to say that they don't have a, a a deity patron following. It's just not theirs anymore. I like the idea of uh, for a paladin also switching allegiances. Like you can stay alive, but um, you, you're you're cutting all ties with your patron, and I will be your new patron. Like you'll now be a paladin yeah. of death. Yes. For the uh, for the ranger, the classic one is um, sacrificing your animal companion, which I That's would never do. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not even going to ask for that. Hard line. No, thank you. <laughs> your, your Discord icon makes that clear. Yes, my Discord icon is my dog, technically my parents' dog, and I will not stand for this insult. Let's which which ones have we not said? I think Barbarian. I don't no, think we've covered Barbarian. We haven't done Cleric or Immolator. I have one for Immolator, oh. though, which is fun. Go for it. Uh, Immolator, return to the world, but know that your flame will have no heat. It is the icy flame of death now. Mm. So in fiction, I guess what that means is the Immolator can still do all of the Immolator stuff, except that none of their fire... Except that you know none of their fire can melt. It can still destroy, 
but it doesn't melt, it doesn't brand, it doesn't burn anymore. I think um, I'm going to try to form the cleric one around um, around the idea of instead of just a permanent alteration of the character, it's a, a request, and the request is uh, objectionable in some way, and so like that might be a reason why they might decline. So, so for example, the cleric wants to keep on living to serve their god, but death might request of them, I need you to... Um, there is a certain child that was supposed to die in childbirth but didn't, and you need to deliver them to me, and you need to go find them, here's where they are, and kill them, mm-hmm. and the cleric might decline of like, you know, the price is too great, you know? Yeah. I, I would also possibly give the cleric a really terrible new rote, something that they always have prepared by the rules. <laughs> Just attempt them to cast it. Exactly. Death's touch rote. Fill in the spell description here. Email Con- us the spell description. Or submit it for our contest, which is still ongoing. Ends June 30th. Yeah, we haven't seen um, uh, th- this. A lot of people, especially towards the beginning of this contest, as a quick side note, uh, were saying wizard spell and then the level, which um, is makes sense in Dungeon World because you have to specify if it's a spell for like the wizard spell book or the cleric one. In my mind, all spells are wizard things, and then clerics, what they do is something else. It's like you know divine miracles, petitions, or yeah, mi- miracles yeah. something else. Um, but if you want to submit uh, a cleric spell, because Vanilla Dungeon World clerics do cast spells, whatever you call them, it, they're structured exactly the same, you can. So if you want to submit divinely themed spells or things like that for the contest, we will consider them. Absolutely, we will. And I think we already have a little bit. I but, don't think there's anything that like specifically said cleric spell or yeah. anything We'd like have that. to go back through and look, which we will be doing soon. Yeah. Uh, I expect a... Uh, expect an announcement as to the winner shortly, but I think what we're going to end up doing is announcing the winner live on the air during our upcoming call-in episode on July 3rd. Get hyped. So be sure to tune in for that. We'll talk a a little bit more about our plans around that later in the episode, but for now. For now, Eamon, it's time to make a switch. To make a choice. To continue on. To meta-talk. Today in MetaTalk, we're going to do a little little quick workshop on custom moves. What's a good custom move? Why might you make a custom move? And what are the benefits you can gain from having a custom move? Arthur? So, I've made custom moves before, both in a compendium class style, where I've passed a player a, spe- a move that is now part of their character sheet, and also as a way to heighten tension and and outline the nature of a place that the party has arrived in. Um, and I think those are kind of two big places where a custom move can be really useful, either to inject flavor into a setting or a session, or to give a player something new which isn't currently covered in their class. Um, but I think I've also made a lot of mistakes in the custom moves that I've put together before. One of the mistakes that I made, uh, very early on is choosing specific consequences for a six minus that did not necessarily follow logically from the seven to nine or ten plus cases so to me like they're uh, having two prescribed options for a move and letting the six minus be open is great 
but I also think that there are times when it's important to set consequences on the six minus or set an effect on the six minus in addition to what the GM does. But what I think is a bad idea is making the six minus always have a specific GM move that comes along with it, like take damage or yeah, automatically. Yeah. Yeah. Lose a ration. So I think the one time you might want to have a set in stone GM move is if this is a a utility move or a soft move or something where uh, you want the six minus to mean something very specific and not to always signify like chaos or something. Mm -hmm. um, although in general, like um, having ha so, uh, the, the benefit of it is that it's reliable. The player going to the move knows that even if they roll a six minus, this is what's going to happen. And you might want that sometimes. Whereas normally you're, what you want is flexibility because the, the time you want to be flexibility most often is in failure, right? Yeah, absolutely. One of the, uh, but uh, you know, one, one of the times when I think a six minus move should definitely be prescribed is something like the druid transform move. Yeah, because so they can rely on getting that one hold. No exactly. What. Make it clear that no matter how this goes, they do still get something out of it. Um, but yeah, it's very hard to to set a consequence for a six minus um one move that i've made that i've given to a thief before is sort of a blink ability where on a seven to nine they don't end up quite where they want to end up and on a six minus they leave something behind in the ethereal realm that's a really fun thing to be able to do on a six minus but at the same time i could have just let that be something that i was ready to do without it being part of the written description of the move that i gave to the player or it could be the seven to nine. Like totally, um, one choose of the, one, one. Of the possibilities. Yeah. Is, yeah. So to that point, another thing that I th one thing I think works really really well when making a custom move is the classic dungeon world. Present a list and choose three on a ten plus and choose one on a seven to nine. I think that that is one of the coolest things that dungeon world does. That apocalypse world games in general, or powered by the apocalypse games in general, do. The, the scope of options that you get are such a great jumping off point for roleplay and making that choice can be really challenging and fun. So highly, highly encourage that. You know, choosing three for 10 plus, choosing one for a seven to nine. Um, I think that uh, a special attention in custom moves should be paid to the trigger because um, the way that I like to use custom moves and I think oh, a very effective way to use them um, in addition to whatever else you do is to add flavor to a location or a situation that says once they enter this room or once they enter this you know this palace or whatever present to the players like hey guys i made a i made a custom move for this location here it is uh, just letting you know if you do this thing it'll trigger it because um that allows you to make interesting like negative custom moves or um flavorful like darker custom moves and show them as ways to frame up scenes where there's going to be mechanical guidance behind it um for example you might have a dark shrine, you know, uh, maybe maybe you have a shrine to like Lolth or like some some other like dark god or whatever you have in your own setting. And say like, if you, you know, cut your hand and like offer your life's blood um, uh, on this shrine or like a, you know, portion of your blood on this shrine, roll plus wisdom to like seek Lolth's, uh, seek Lolth's blessing, right? Or something like that. And you, you have a move ready for like what the blessing is in a 10 plus, what it is if she finds you wanting, and then leave it ominously blank for a six minus or whatever. Um, the players aren't going to just think to go and cut their hand and do it on that shrine with nothing, right? 
a, one way of easily without having to do a lot of like dancing around and foreshadowing and stuff in the fiction where it's not clear or having someone outright say go ahead and cut your hand on the shrine that player's gonna be super sketched out by that players are very conservative by default they're very concerned for the character uh, the safety of their characters just naturally because they're they're wanting to um, see them succeed and win and so should you as a fan of the characters but if you provide them the move it shows them the structure of like, oh when i do this this is what's going to happen even if it's ominously blank for the six minus they're more likely to do something like that something that traditionally would be unwise um, if there's a, a move ready, like it, yeah. it encourages the players to take take risks, even sometimes. Yeah, there's also the version of that where you don't where, where the move is a trigger and a result, without a role involved. When you cut your when when you spill blood on the altar of Loth, your soul and your body are separated. Is a move that I would have no problem handing to my players. Not so that they would feel like, yes, I have to go and, and leave a blood off offering on this altar, but instead to set up the six minus consequence down the line that the orc's blade rips through your shoulder. And almost as if time is slowed, we see a drop, just one single solitary drop cascading onto the altar where it lands with a plink. And your body falls away from your soul as... You ascend untethered by gravity, you know, just because we've got that move already set up. The player understands exactly what happens there when it, when it does and lets them lean into the dramatic irony or at least an antici anticipate the consequence when it comes up. Um, additionally, custom moves uh, can be a way to push Dungeon World's flexibility into areas it didn't normally have. Um, for example, um, Dungeon World doesn't do Mega Dungeons super well, for example, because it's hard to keep track of, you know, you're not, you, by default, you don't already have all the rooms plotted out. Um, it, it can be kind of railroady to put a character in something where you already know what's behind every single door. Uh, but if you want, you can abstract with a really clever move uh, an entire labyrinthine space into a procedure, which moves are basically procedures. I want to call out um, a probably the most brilliant single custom move that I've seen made by a community member for Dungeon Worlds, um, which is um, the Labyrinth move, as it's come to be known, that uh, uh, Jason Cordova made in the in the Gauntlet community. And um, I've seen lots of versions of this move because people adapt it for their own settings. But here's the basic move, Jason's original version of it. When you attempt to navigate Vlad's palace, describe how you do it and then roll plus stat. So whatever stat is appropriate based on what you described. On a 12 plus, hold 2. On a 10 plus, hold 1. On a 7 to 9, hold 1. But you also encounter a guardian. On a miss, you encounter a guardian. On a 1 to 3, also lose all hold. And if multiple party members navigate in turn, their hold is pooled for the entire party. And to find a treasure in the palace, you spend one hold and you describe the room that you find it in, or the GM does. And at any time, you can spend three hold to find the inner sanctum to find vlad's inner sanctum and that was made because he uh I, I understand that jason was trying to run the red and pleasant land setting and there is a map for vlad's um castle in that that is just head spinning like trying to like keep track of everything in this would be insane so it's just abstracted out where based on what the players say um and based on where they are we can just inject the cool things from this um map and we don't have to go like we're we're abstracting the actual act of them navigating and getting lost and things like that into this move, so I've seen that you know be be um, adapted for people to uh, 
have giant sunken cities and they could have the characters navigate by just using a move of like you know good stats give you points that you can spend to find the entrance or to find other useful things um hazards will occasionally come up and you can get lost on bad rolls what do you think about that i like it a lot um in part because it's another time when we can when we can separate player skill from character skill in a pretty important way it's a player skill to look at a map that, that the dm has drawn and find a path through it and it's a character skill to look for to just have a high wisdom exactly yeah, to, to kind like of that, understand yeah. what interior design is in the context of vlad's sanctum specifically um so. and it lets you as a gm not worry about taking a dizzying setting like red and pleasant land um and 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 just have the flexibility to pick and choose right like you don't have to be like oh i'd love them to go to the mirror room but they aren't going to because it's all the way in that wing and they're just never going to get over there like if you want the mirror room to be on screen when when they spend some points to find something cool just be like now you're in the mirror room totally they don't have to know that it's like in the original book not right next to that other thing another thing uh, that a custom move can do is mass combat like you might have like a swirling huge army of orcs and you want the character to sort of navigate that space you can i don't have something ready for this but like whatever you want out there you can just have the trigger for the movie when you navigate a you know a, a an enormous conflict well, yes, when your platoon faces the orcish raiding party, roll, uh, describe what you what describe what you do in command and roll plus stat. I don't know, just a just an initial notion. Yeah. Um, Another um, control being taken away from the characters can sometimes uh, be arbitrated by a move. Like there's a classic mind control move, um, which is. Um, when the character falls under the sway of mind control or some entity, the GM takes X number of hold, uh, depending on how severe it was, usually between one to three. And then the GM can spend that hold to suggest a course of action to the player. And if the player uh, takes that course of action, they get one XP. So it's a way to sort of give the player control still. They can say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to attack my friend or I'm not going to steal this thing. Um, uh, but there's the temptation of XP. They might want to do it. And it yeah. also kind of puts a procedure there. So even before something like this happens, the player already knows, like, hey, if I get mind controlled, this is what's going to happen. So there, it, it allows there to be um, clarity. Yeah. And it, it, I am vaguely, I, I like this move, but I also am vaguely encouraged to flip the consequence, which is if you don't do it, you lose an XP. Not a very, not a very traditional dungeon world approach, but in my head, I'm thinking about whether my players would be more likely to forego XP to avoid hurting their friends or to lose XP to avoid hurting their friends. Interesting. Uh, yeah. To me, the um, latter is slightly more challenging to, to deal with. Can I highlight um, one more um, interesting move from the Gauntlet community? Yeah, go nuts. So this is called Visions of Death by Jason Cordova. And you use this move whenever a character consults a person or object that tells them something about how they might die. And here's the, um, here's the classic formulation of it. Uh, when you consult Inid of the Well about how you might die, hold three. Whenever you're about to perform an action that triggers a roll, you may spend one hold to explain how this situation relates to one of Inid's visions. Mark one XP. For that roll, the six minus result is replaced with roll for last breath. Uh-huh. So it's basically yes. like you get three XP that you can spend in the future, but the ch- the the consequence is you're basically upping the stakes of this roll, whatever it is, to death, and you have to explain why uh, in its vision related to potentially dying in this situation. Neat. It's a, it's a really fun one. That is very fun. I think I've seen a version of that, but I don't, I don't know if it was the original text or not. 
So anyway, these are some of the cool ways we can use custom moves to fill in gaps and make things a little bit more clear to our players. I just wanted to shout out two more applications quickly, or one of which is sort of a way to structure a custom move, and the other is a particular time to use them. So as far as structure is concerned, I think a lot of the time we get hung up on our custom moves being uh, triggered by the actions of a single character. But then I also think some very good moves in the book are full group moves. Undertake a Perilous Journey is an example where everyone rolls for something and everyone benefits or uh, and, and the result is to the benefit or detriment of the entire party. So there, are, going back to our example of mass combat, that might be an opportunity for a full group move. Uh, when you when you join an army on the on the dawn of a battle, you know everyone rolls plus some particular stat and um, gets some hold to spend on the tide of battle turns. Um, a, a blow that would have doomed you is is in, is taken by a by a comrade in arms, something to that effect. Um, it it's a way to make sure that everyone is equally a part of something and that the consequences and benefits are shared by the whole group by making the custom move apply to everybody and not just one person. Group moves are something really, really interesting uh, that I think is a fertile space for custom moves, especially since Dungeon World uh, Vanilla doesn't really have much of that, um, except for perhaps uh, Perilous Journeys, which is like a three-part move. Yeah. Um. I was thinking as well that uh, a lot of people I've seen around the Dungeon World community use uh, custom moves as a way to spice up boss fights. That they're like, this place is a special procedure, or interacting with this foe um, is going to naturally trigger a certain move. Um, I'm, I, I think personally I'm most interested in its ability to push uh, mechanical choice in interesting spaces, like those things where you get XP at a, at like a high cost yeah. that you wouldn't normally be presented with, or to... Um, make life easier like the labyrinth move or with mass combat moves or things like that totally so one opportunity to apply a custom move in your game is the love letter the love letter as a concept is something that is found throughout powered by the apocalypse games but i don't believe the dungeon world rulebook explicitly spells out the procedure for one of these it does not yeah so Eamon, have you ever used a love letter in one of your games i have um love letters are a favorite of mine because uh the problem that they're trying to address is um periods of absence so for uh for example like the players um you've taken several weeks off that you wouldn't normally from gaming like out of character and then you're coming back and you want there to be some sort of gap um in character as well or maybe there was no gap out of character but you just want there to be a gap in character or the classic example of someone was gone for a certain session then they come back and you use this to get them back in um, and then a final example uh, before I'll pass it to you to explain exactly what they are is maybe you're at a convention or something and you want to start start the story in media rest so you give a love letter to each uh, to each player totally so the basic premise of a love letter is that it is a custom move with a narrative focus I've often seen them presented as, a couple of sentences, maybe a full paragraph of narration describing what the character has been up to, what they've done, what choice they've made, etc. Then there's an opportunity for the player, optionally, to insert a particular choice in the mix. Something like, uh, did you kill the pirate captain or did you let the pirate captain go uh, it, and show mercy? Something to that effect. And then from there, oftentimes a love letter is concluded with a role plus stat on a 10 plus 
this happens seven to nine this happens six minus etc um the idea there being that it gives the player full narrative control of sort of the starting hook for the session whether that is in the form of getting to choose which version of a role gets made or just making a choice about some narration that the gm has already decided on as an initial framing it is a useful a useful tool that i think makes people feel included especially when they have not been included recently due to their absence or just you know whatever for whatever reason when it's time to bring someone back into the fold a love letter is a perfectly good way to do it um do you want to provide a, a specific example i would I love one. to let me see if i can come okay. up with one right now um <clears throat> let's see what's a what's one that i've had to use recently do you want me to give you like a situation yeah why don't we, why don't we go with it? that we'll get, come up with a starting situation here and we'll we'll workshop all this right. together all right I'm, I'm pulling this off the top of my head too so i'm playing dungeon world with my buddies bill and jeff um and uh, jeff misses one week uh jeff's playing a fighter and they were about to go into um a hag's uh coven to sort of like purge these hags it's a it's a fighter and a paladin and so the paladin went in alone and the fighter was gone that week and then the the hags are all dead now and the paladin is on his way back to town and the fighter player uh is rejoining for the next session so what what love letter do you give to the fighter all right jeff while bill was dealing with the coven of hags you were called away for a different extermination operation specifically a, a king to whom you owed a favor needed a local warren of gnolls cleared out entirely but when you arrived there you found that the gnolls had already left but they they left in a hurry and they left something behind uh what was it the player then you know jeff then fills in a detail about what was left and then based on the answer to that i'll adjust the following move accordingly all right um roll plus strength on a 10 plus you were easily able to defeat whatever it was that chased the gnolls away on a seven to nine you chased them away but the the thing you found was destroyed in the process and then on a six minus uh, you were gravely injured in the process as well describe your injury maybe and how it will impact you or today. marketability or something yeah, potentially for sure that's a great one i'm impressed um off the i dome. like the idea that like uh the, the the players comes back and there's something satisfying about like they were gone for a reason and they have the potential to uh sort of gain some like away from the table loot like characters are often mm -hmm. like ooh, and they like or players i should say are like excited for that yeah. it's also possible to do a um a uh, love letter for, just for the whole party to um elide time so um joe banner has an article uh where he talks about what is a love letter where he says that the um in the last session maybe the players killed an ogre and they reclaimed to try to like reclaim a cache of uh, magic items in the name of the paladin's god but the gm was keen to keep the story moving along and they wanted instead of just them going back to town and selling stuff next session to fast forward to six months later um, to deal with the repercussions of their newfound power that they have all this items and stuff so they write the following love letter congratulations on the loot guys the ogre's dead you're starting to get known as the people who solve problems good for you since you picked up those magic items six months have passed you're probably uh founding your finding yourself a place to live and you've been hot on the trail of that cultist who fled the scene everybody roll plus whatever you've been using to bring this guy to justice strength if you defeated him in combat int if you outsmarted him whiz if you've tracked him for weeks etc 
uh, we'll take your results as a group average on a 10 plus results. Uh, 10 plus results cancel out six minus ones. On a 10 plus, he's dead and everyone knows it. You've got a good place in the city, but someone's dropped a familiar corpse on your doorstep. On a seven to nine, he's dead, but it cost one of you something. The GM will say, what? You're living in a local town well enough, but don't have the scratch to turn down a job if one comes your way, even if it's something boring. Um, on a six minus, you've either got the guy at a great cost or he got away your choice. You're holed up in some backwater village on the road to the city. You've still got the magic items and the shirts in your back, but little else. Um, so that's an example of uh, uh, a love letter being used to um, frame a time skip, which is another yeah. fun use. So. It, it's a fun way to do a full group move, too, to have everyone average out their results. Yeah, that's definitely a custom move. You know, like we don't see that procedure in Vanilla Dungeon World. For sure. Okay, well, I think that that just about covers custom moves today at least it gives us a framework for creating them um question Eamon go ahead what are we picturing this week so as I said um way at the beginning of this episode I've been digging into the black cube invisible sun and character design in that game is very interesting since the the whole the genre um the sort of nascent genre that I, I don't even know if really exists yet that that game is trying to emulate is not uh, high fantasy, it's not cyberpunk, it's surreal fantasy. And so I had the idea of, um, there's there's this thing in the setting where it occasionally just rains keys, rains various keys of different sorts and occasionally magic keys rain down. And I had the idea that my character is a craftsman who is a key maker. And so I submit this idea as a, a weird foe uh, if you, or NPC if you want that you can put in your own game. This this in, in, in my game, Invisible Sun would be a player character because this is sort of de rigueur for the setting this sort of character, but it could be a special NPC in your own game. Clavager. Clavager, the keymaker. Clavager is a humanoid of about uh, six feet tall, and his uh, sig signature feature is that his chest is it um, has a, a hole that goes all the way through it in the shape of an enormous keyhole. No one knows uh, if there's a key that fits this hole or what it would do if it was inserted into him, but uh, he has this space in which he sometimes used to store things. Um, for example, uh, bundles of scrolls that he could uh, press in that space or uh, pack to meats sometimes. Uh, his armor is um, an array of hundreds of keys that he has um, uh, looped uh, into chainmail all over his body that mitigate attacks. Um, additionally, occasionally he'll find a door that fits one of these keys. So uh, Clavager could have, uh, if you wanted to make him a monster, the moves uh, produce just the right key, uh, avoid an attack with... Uh, with a chest keyhole, and uh, know everything on the subject of doors and passages. Those would be his uh, moves, and uh, you can stat him up in terms of numerical stats, however you wish. That's very. I imagine long. that if you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to get really Kingdom Hearts with it, he could have a giant keyblade. Hmm. But uh, that might be a little bit too anime for your setting. Depends, uh, you know, on what you want. I I would say that uh, already. I love this. I love this creature. I, I can think of a few different ways that I would use the clavisher. For instance, the party has just come to a, to a new city. It's sort of a ramshackle, sprawling place built on a hill. Lots of It's almost got sort of a Brazilian favela sort of look to it, where there are lots of small buildings that are sort of stacked amongst each other, uh, going every which way, which means there's a lot of doors. And recently, you know, a couple, a couple of weeks before the PCs all arrived, there have been murders. No signs of breaking or uh, and entering, just people in doors wide open, 
dead on the floor. And of course, now the PCs have to find whatever it is that's doing this. But then, of course, there's also the the other part of it, which is that the clavager is a is a lock itself, not just something with the right mm. keys, but also something that itself opens. So what is it? What does it open to? I love the idea that the players have to hunt down the clavager, having found the key already. And then when they turn it, it opens a door to something. Maybe it's another dimension. Maybe it's another realm. Maybe it's the last shackle holding an ancient dragon god back. Lots of options there. But the idea of a door running around the world trying to avoid being opened, very fun. A door in the shape of a person. Yes. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. And then there's the third thing, which is that if we if we go back to the classic, uh, the classic film Ghostbusters, there is... A, a key and a door sort of encoded into that that brings on Zul the Destroyer or Gozer the Destroyer brings brings on the big bad at the end of it. So maybe there's not only the Clavager but also the the, cla- uh, the opposite of the Clavager who's just a key wandering around someplace. And when the two of them are brought together, that's what opens up the Grim Portal. Indeed. Well, I think this is uh, one one for the picture. This scrapbook yes. for sure. One for the album. So, with that, let's turn to listener emails. Once again, Torin Blood, thank you very much for writing in. Today's question, how do we handle the problem of escalation? I.e., you killed goblins, ogre, a dragon, a god, now what? Killing kobolds just doesn't seem dangerous anymore. Um, my, my initial first blush impressions are, um, if your characters have reached that top power level, they've killed a god... Um, that's probably a time to wrap up a campaign uh, for me, or at least to frame it into uh, a new realm. You know that they are there; that everything is scaling up mm-hmm. somehow. Um, because if there's this continual power creep, uh, and and especially if you're playing in more of a hack and slashy campaign where it's just about defeating bigger and bigger foes, if you've defeated the biggest thing that there is fictionally in that campaign setting, then maybe you're done. You know, um, and and may- maybe it's you can call that a victory condition. But if you do want to keep playing, and the question is simply, um, you want to maybe reassess the power curve and like make things a threat to the player without being too cheap, um, that uh, they they don't consider a threat anymore. You can start um, pushing a little harder on the fictional positioning, right? Um, you can start having creatures that require special preparations, uh, spe- almost ritualistic. Um, uh, preparations of finding uh, ingredients or making certain things or having certain bits of lore at the ready to even have a hope of defeating. Um, if you want to get really existential with it and just want it fictionally to keep going higher after you've killed a god, maybe they start trying to t- uh, tame the fundamental forces of the universe. Maybe they want to defeat sleep, um, you know, so they never they never again have to tire. And maybe they have to uh, capture hunger and transform hunger into like a weapon or something you can get really existential with it at that point um if you're really maxing out but uh, my question would be um are they 10th level because if they're not 10th level uh, how do they kill a god you know yeah there's there's room to go there yeah Yeah. maybe they accidentally killed a god. (laughs) totally maybe it was a death's bargain the the other way to do that too if you're having trouble with your escalation curve having gotten too steep is just flatten it down a little bit sure you all killed a god and when you do, you look out over his domain and you see his brother, his brother who was just slain by a roving warband of, of, of goblins. 
a foe that you don't consider to be that challenging, all things considered. You've probably defeated a roving warband before as well. But they were able to kill a god the same as you. Flattening that down, making it clear that, yes, you have done something of incredible, uh, that's an incredible achievement, but you're not the only ones who could have achieved it. And now there's a threat that obviously is at your level or could be at your level. Maybe you, you don't know. You know, that, that way you have, you have an avenue to approach that doesn't require you to get bigger. Uh, instead, what you've done is you've you've flattened the curve you've already established. Uh, I, I'm... Or because of um, because of your actions, the world shifts accordingly. Yeah. Like the other gods saw you kill that god and they know how you did it, so that won't work again. Or you kill the god, you guys are essentially gods now, and there are other god killers coming for you. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, I'm thinking about Norse mythology a little bit here, where a lot of the Norse myths are follow a particular group of gods who seem like they constantly feel like they're under threat from literally everything else in the world. Even though they always end up winning, they're still constantly going off on campaigns against the giants or trying to trick dwarves or trying to ensnare friendly wolves, all sorts of other options. And the whole time, it feels like they're the gods. They're the ones who are supposed to be in control of this. And all the myths seem to portray them as people who don't feel like they're in control, which means that probably your PCs who just killed the god should feel the same way. Yes, all the evidence points to the fact that they're always going to win, but are they really? Seems like a lot can still go wrong. I do think that the um, the Dungeon World uh, core rulebook provides a great uh, breadth of monsters too. That if you want to dole out over time, incrementally more and more powerful stuff, it takes you up quite high because you eventually get to statless monsters, right? Yeah. To monsters that like um, they are, you know, just extremely powerful demons or something, and they don't even give them, you know. 2d10 best out of 2d10 like for their damage it's just they could kill someone with a thought if they really wished it so that's going to be more of a narrative encounter than a um simple simple numerical duke out um but yeah uh, i think that uh you you've definitely got enough material there to take you all the way to 10th level and like have a whole satisfying campaign without escalation feeling played out if you uh sort of play your cards right totally all right so I hope that answers your question, Torin. Again, as always, feel free to write in with questions. You can message us on Discord at Art Projects and at Voidlight, but you can also send us email. Play to find out at protonmail.com is the email address. Beyond that, even, you can tweet at us at play number two, find out, play to find out. In order to get your questions read on the air or just to reach out in general and say hi to us. Now, we've got a couple a of announcements. Reminder, uh... We're hungry for spells. Hungry for spells. spells. Uh, our competition, our spell competition is coming to a close shortly. By the time you're hearing this, I believe you will have four calendar days left to finish submitting your spells. Again, it ends at 12 o'clock a.m. EST on June 30th, which is a Saturday. Realistically, I will not cut off entries until 12.05. But at this point, if you haven't already submitted your cool, cool ideas, get on that. We can't wait to see them already so much fun and it's going to keep being fun and to that point i doubt this will be the last competition we do of this form it probably won't be spell contests next time but i'm already kicking around some cool ideas and uh, i'm sure that we're going to come up with something very cool for you all to engage with shortly signature weapon contest Signature weapon contest might be it uh Eamon and i are going to continue talking about what is happening next and i think we're going to come up with something very cool yeah one thing that is happening pretty soon is our uh our, live, our show. live show on july 3rd starting at i'm gonna just make a claim here 8 30 p.m est sound good sounds, sounds all right, right. Sounds uh, right. at 8 30 p.m est 
we're going to be playing Dungeon World with Legacy Weapon. We're going to be continuing the adventures of Willem well met in his descent into hell, chasing the Paladin Tarseminus. And while we're doing that, we're also going to be looking for questions coming in on the Discord. If your question is fun and good, we will invite you on the show to talk to us about it directly live on the air across twitch.tv. And then we'll be putting the archive of that up a couple of days afterwards. So no regular episode the week of July uh, on July 2nd. Instead, we'll be playing July 3rd and there will be a new episode hitting the feed from that recording shortly afterwards. Absolutely. And you can catch that on, yeah. on Twitch live. And during that live show, we're going to be announcing the winner of the spell contest because we will have had time to select them at that point. And we'll also be announcing the next uh, community collaboration contest uh, during that show as well. So make sure you tune in again. That's July 3rd, around 8.30 EST on twitch.tv. There will be more information going up in an announcement post on the podcast feed and available on all of our social media as needed. All right. Well, my fictional meat is uh, is completely dry at this point, yes. Arthur. What about you? Ah, uh, mine is long since quaffed. <laughs> you you've quaffed the the lot of it. Quaffed the lot. The bottle is empty. The cup hath run dry. And I think that means it's time for us to call it for today on Play to Find Out. <laughs>